Hello, my name is John Lovering, and I am the host of Audio Theater, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci, and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. Next up, we have Pat Day. She is a retired educator in the Seacoast area who got her master's in education from UNH along with a BA in journalism and kinesiology. Pat founded two outdoor educational programs, the ABC Factor, a service work project for teens, and Reach for the Stars, a UNH science camp for girls. Tonight, she will read her story in honor of her father, who was a journalist and newspaper editor. Her daughter, Genevieve Achel, will join Pat in this reading. Genevieve, Artistic Director of New Hampshire Theatre Project, has so many credits to her name that I can't list them all here. Suffice it to say that Jen is a good friend of mine, <laughs> with whom on a regular basis I drink martinis at a lovely little cocktail table on Lake Nubanusit. Now sit back and enjoy a mother-daughter telling Pat Day's tale of truth or consequences. It was April 2001, spring vacation break in New Hampshire schools, the weather cold and damp. After 30 years as an educator, I gave myself a gift for my 71st birthday. I heard New Mexico was the land of enchantment. An American Youth Hostel, AYH guidebook, raved about hot springs in the city of the sun. I flew there fast, landed in Albuquerque, took a late night bus to a town called Truth or Consequences. <laughs> the driver left me on a dark sidewalk in front of an empty store window. My backpack was not on the bus. Oh, Lady, are you okay? There's an all night taxi service here, right? Just get my backpack on tomorrow's bus. Yes, ma'am. I stood alone, watched red taillights disappear. Shadowed buildings grew around me. I called the cab. A woman answered. TRC taxi service? Hi, this is Pat. I called earlier from Albuquerque to schedule a cab. Right, hon, I remember. You at the Greyhound bus stop? Is it a deserted store with empty windows? Yep, that's it. No terminal here. I need a ride to the American Youth Hostel on Austin Street. All right, dearie. Hang on. I won't forget you. After an eternity, headlines, headlights approached. Taxi glowed from a small rooftop sign. A woman peered out the driver's window. She looked to be about 100, God bless her. <laughs> Gaunt with stringy white hair tied up in a blue ribbon ponytail. Where's your luggage? 
I pointed to my small day pack. This is it. Greyhound lost my backpack. They made me check it at the Albuquerque terminal. That's the last I saw of it. The driver says he'll try to get it on tomorrow's bus. Well, good luck with that. Uh, my name's Pearl. Ever been to Truth or Consequences before? Us locals call it T or C for short. No, I'm a teacher from New England looking for those mineral baths. Ah, Riverbend, A-Y-H Hostel, overlooks the Rio Grande, not very far from here. It's the only open-air spa we have highlighted the town. You'll love this place. It wasn't long before Pearl pulled up to the hostel. This is it. Doesn't look too open. Motel's probably got a room if you need it. The owner said she'd leave a light on for me. Wait a second while I check it out. I recognized the AYH sign, scanned the darkness with my flashlight. Old trailers clustered around a one-story flat-roofed building with a light by one of the doors. I stepped toward the door and knocked. No answer. I tried the door. It opened. A ceiling light revealed a small room with two double-decker bunks. One lower bunk was empty, sheet and blanket folded back. Occupants slept in the other three beds. I paid Pearl and slipped back into the room. Despite efforts to be owl still, I woke the other three women. A freckled strawberry blonde who introduced herself as April, a young woman who spoke very little English but was able to communicate that she was Tamika from Japan, and Donna, a tall, dark-haired beauty from Canada who came to TRC on college break and never left. She worked part-time at the hostel as kind of house mother. We talked briefly, turned out the light, and I fell asleep in my underwear. Everyone woke chirpy in the morning. We crowded into the tiny kitchen, coffee perked, bacon and eggs sizzled in a cast-iron skillet. Hostelers pulled labeled food out of the fridge while I nibbled on gorp. When others learned that my food lay stuffed in a green backpack somewhere in Never Never Land, they welcomed me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob, a snowboarder from Aspen. Have some orange juice. <laughs> my name's Jeremiah. I'm from New Jersey, running away from home. Here's a cup of coffee. I make the best brews. Punk <laughs> made Tamika cooked rice and miso soup with dried fish and handed me a plate. Some ate at the kitchen table. Others wandered out to benches set up against the long wall of the building, facing a haphazard Zen garden with peace signs painted on rocks. Buddha and Christian statues scattered between flowers. Two large teepees decorated a grassy area at one end of the building for guests willing to sleep outdoors with scorpions. <laughs> Gradually, people wandered in from all around with one focus, the baths. Steaming geothermal water hissed upward from an open drain. Bathers settled into the water with coffee and morning newspaper in hand. I sat across from Crystal Waters Whitehawk, an American Indian medicine woman with Sioux and Navajo heritage. We call ourselves the original people, people of the stone. Columbus and the white people named us Indians. That's okay, we're all one circle. I shared my missing backpack predicament with her, and Crystal was shocked. You what? You went into the Albuquerque bus terminal alone? At night? I never go in there unless I'm packing, too. <laughs> <laughs> we four bunkmates, April, Donna, Tamika, and I, connected like an electric circuit. 
We formed a sisterly gang as we began our week of merry escapades with fellow hostelers, who rolled in and out, each dusting the scene with a fresh, arid, sagebrush scent. Their stays were fleeting, but memorable. April was ringleader of our hated band. Clad in a fisherman's jacket, she traveled in a red jeep with chicken wire, wooden stakes, netting, and duffel bags strapped to its roof, the tools of her trade. I'm working on my Ph.D., studying the sex life of the claret-cupped cactus. <laughs> she took me into the desert, gave advice on desert survival, wear a big straw hat with dark sunglasses, we're 3,000 feet above sea level in hot, dry sun, drink 10 cups of water daily, watch out for snakes, especially rattlers. Forget the snakes, I needed gloves. No one mentioned gloves. The terrain was so rocky and uneven, I often had to walk on all fours. Rough, reddish rocks shredded my hands. The only big straw hat was on April's head. She called back as I grabbed for one rock and then the next. There's nothing out west that won't bite you, prick you, or stick you. And then there's plants and animals. <laughs> Early evening on my first hostel day, Tamika had offered to accompany me to pick up my backpack. She was a courageous bundle, a card-carrying bone marrow donor, a pediatric nurse traveling America on a Kawasaki motorcycle. She would soon leave for a two-year stint in Pakistan to teach Pakistani nurses modern Western methods of women's health care. We walked to the deserted store to rescue my luggage. The bus came to a slow curbside stop. A different driver in a black polyester uniform opened the underbed compartment. After other passengers had claimed their bags, there was only one left. My green backpack sat alone against the far back wall. I requested my property. The driver stared at me, nose to nose. Receipt, please. I have no receipt. Greyhound didn't give me a receipt, only this ticket stub from Albuquerque to TRC. He turned away and moved to close the underbed compartment. Sorry, no receipt, no luggage. Wait, that's my backpack. The clerk said it would be on this bus. No receipt, no luggage, lady. That snarky driver didn't have a chance. Before his hand touched the door, I erupted in volcanic anger, exploded into the compartment, slid toward my pack, leapt to the ground, and ran down the street, all in one fluid motion. <laughs> As I shouldered my bag, he shouted after me. I take no responsibility. Stolen property. I will report you. By the time Tamika caught up to me, I had slowed down, but I was shaking, breathing heavily, unable to talk. We walked on in silence, watched the bus disappear. That evening's sunset spa ritual had a celebratory aura. Multicolored lights flickered among Tibetan prayer flags strung around the veranda. Guitars strummed. Murmured voices changed morning silence into soft laughter. Shadows turned the Rio Grande in emerald green. House mother Donna had baked a chocolate cake she stepped into the spa in a bikini with long open skirt billowing across the water as she presented cake, plates, and forks in a formal bow, a gift for her favorite hostelers. April followed with mugs, fresh limes, and a shaker of margaritas. I've invented a new religion. She, <laughs> raised, 
She raised her mug toward Mount Turtleback, a sacred prayer mountain on the opposite side of the Rio Grande. Here's to Pat, our fearless friend, who snatched her backpack from the bowels of the bus and lived to tell the tale. (laughs) (laughs) Laughter echoed across the Rio Grande to Turtle Pack Mountain, and back as Donna added to the toast. Remember, sisters, never put Pat in a corner. Next up, we have Kathy Wolf. Kathy is a writer who lives in Kittery, Maine, and she spends much of her time focused on controlling her garden jungles that harbor almost every type of New England invasive, short of kudzu, because that's in my yard. She and her uh, <laughs> she and her four-side neighbors are also battling another New England invasive. High-end condos and pricey marinas that are trying to take over their neighborhood. Once again, brought back by popular demand, Kathy returns to True Tales Radio to tell us her story, A Very Hot Mexican Vacation. Um, Somehow, I didn't think... A trip with my son to Oaxaca, Mexico, would include the two of us being forced naked into a hot oven and whipped with leaves by a 200-year-old asthmatic woman. (laughs) It was eight years ago, and I had just been laid off as communications director uh, of a nonprofit music school. With the severance money, I decided I would go to Mexico because I wanted to learn Spanish. It was part of my long-standing personal wish list, right up there with finding a lifelong partner, learning the name of plants and constellations, and growing presentable fingernails. So I thought maybe (laughs) one out of four wouldn't be bad if I could master Spanish. I, I had nailed the politically correct way to say Cuba, Chile, and Nicaragua, and done my share of chanting Nosotros Unidos Hamas over the years, although never quite remembering the second part. But I wanted more than to be able to find a baño, buy a homoca, or order chiliano. My son, Tyler, eagerly agreed to go. He knew it would meet his college language requirement. He briefly discussed the idea of his girlfriend joining us, and then he talked about maybe returning to the States with another friend via motorcycle. I discouraged both those plans. My vision of the trip was a little different. I saw it as a chance to try one last time for that mysterious thing psychologists call mother-son, or I guess daughter, bonding. I've never really known what that means, but I'm pretty sure we didn't have it. I blame myself since I stopped nursing him at two or three months. (laughs) He spent most of his high school years with his father, and then, long before that, there was that unfortunate middle-of-the-night potty training incident with the pajama zipper. Uh, So I hedged the bonding bets by arranging for us to stay in different host homes while we attended Spanish classes in the school in Oaxaca. I imagined we would still share lazy afternoons after class, hanging out together at a cafe, chatting with artisans, playing chess, lingering in art galleries. Maybe he would take me to a salsa club. (laughs) After two nights in a mosquito-infested Mexico City (laughs) hotel, 
together and a long bus ride over the mountains to Oaxaca, which is in the center, southern center of Mexico, we were really glad to go our, to our separate homes <laughs> and just make appointments three or four times a week to spend a couple of hours together, usually wedged in between our own pursuits. For Tyler, that meant hanging out in the ritzier part of town and going dancing with other 20-somethings. Uh, Meanwhile, I took advantage of being an invisible middle-aged woman, and I spent hours wandering through central part of the city, where, as seemed to happen every year in Oaxaca, thousands of striking teachers and their families were living on the sidewalks and in the Zocalo, the center square, and their hand-painted and silkscreen banners, including many of Che Guevara. Oaxaca's governor, in a less than brilliant move, three days before Tyler and I arrived, had tried to dislodge the strikers with tear gas and billy clubs. And now their numbers had grown. They had a million-person march, and they were demanding the governor's resignation. Three weeks into our six-week stay, I needed a break from the noise, the heat, cement, and the political turmoil of the city. Tyler agreed to go with me to the mountains in the little village of Quahamaloyas, a name I tried unsuccessfully to memorize, finally resorting to what by then Tyler had noted as my habit of mumbling the ends of Spanish words to hide the fact I didn't know them. However, with Quahamaloyas, though, I could not even get the first syllable right most of the time. And so I would just say, this little mountain village, or the village next to Benito Juarez, which really didn't mean much since every other person, museum, dog, street, restaurant, and town in Oaxaca is named Benito or Juarez or Benito Juarez, who was a 19th century rags-to-power hero. It was in this little mountain village that we found ourselves naked together in an oven. A tamascal is a Mayan sauna. I was entranced by the photo in the town's brochure that I picked up when I went to get the bus tickets. It showed a shapely back being massaged by a gently smiling, ancient, indigenous woman. Both glowed in the light of a fire, and I imagined that after a soothing massage, the guest would be offered a terrycloth robe and a bowl of Oaxacan hot chocolate, and the two would sit in rocking chairs for a while, talking softly about their lives. Tyler, without a thought, said he wanted to try it too, and I, without a thought, made an appointment for both of us for the next afternoon. <laughs> It was to be our treat after a four-hour mountain hike. I don't know whether it was the sun or the traveling or what, but neither of us seemed to consider the fact that a Tomskal meant we might be naked in the same room. Awkward. (laughs) (laughs) I love saunas and steam baths and have sampled many. A Polish bathhouse in Chicago during the 1970s that was open to women only one afternoon a week and the rest of the time was used by the likes of writers Nelson Algren and Mike Royko I always loved the idea that I was sitting and sweating on the same bench Mike Royko might have been sitting and sweating on only a day earlier. (laughs) I I admire Nelson Algren too, but Mike Royko's writing I loved. I've sat in an old-fashioned steam box in a spa in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I've dunked my head into a barrel of rainwater outside a sweat lodge in the Vermont woods, and I've gotten the full treatment with a vodka, vodka chaser and a dip in an icy pond in a sauna called a banya in the north of, far north of Russia. I can almost hear my muscles unwind when the heat sinks in and the sweat pours out. Saunas are nice, but massages are better. Like a cat, I have always been a sucker for a back rub. 
Dona Manuela, the woman in the brochure photograph, greeted us at her wobbly gate and ushered us into a wobbly wooden shed, where we sat awkwardly on what I at first thought was a bed, but found out rather abruptly was a piece of plywood covered with a dirty cloth. She was a tiny, fast-moving, ancient person. Her long gray hair flew out in several directions, actually in every direction, and I noted with a bit of concern that she seemed angry. <laughs> Before entering the shed, she yelled at an old man who was carrying some wood, and then she yelled at us when she came into the shed, vista la ropa, she commanded. Despite our 60 hours each of Spanish lessons, we weren't clear what she was saying. <laughs> but I knew ropa was clothes. We exchanged slightly embarrassed glances and just sat there. She said it louder, and she started tugging at my shirt. La ropa, la ropa, aporete. I learned later aporete meant hurry up. It's not a good sign for a relaxed session. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, we both fumbled out of our clothes as quickly as possible, and then as nonchalantly tried to cover ourselves with them while we waited for the next command. The ancient one who left her clothes on, was talking <laughs> softly to herself as she crawled into a two-foot-high opening in the wall at the far end of the shed. I hoped what she was saying was a blessing on what was to come, but it probably was more along the lines of, she was too darn old to be doing this for stupid gringos. And she reached back through the blanketed portal to pull the plastic bucket of water in after her. Tyler whispered, please, Tell me we won't have to go into that hole. <laughs> <laughs> Just then, Doña Manuela's head popped out, and she waved impatiently for us to join her. I went first. Inside, the oven was maybe 12 feet in circumference and no more than four feet high. A dusty matting of some kind covered the floor. The whole place was very dark, except for Doña Manuela's tiny flashlight, which clearly needed no batteries and kept blinking out. Say your question, she ordered, and I just sat there. I figured out what she meant when she tossed a cup of water through another hole in the wall, and a blast of steam forced me quickly to lie face down. At that point, Tyler clambered into the oven, so took a dive over my body and lay face down as well. <laughs> Doña Manuela kept mumbling about her cabeza, her head, and the need to keep it covered with a rag that looked to me like it was a t-shirt, an old one. And she created more hissing steam. In between blasts of steam, I squinted into the dark, trying to see if maybe something else was baking in there along with us, maybe bread, maybe an overdone, <laughs> maybe an overdone tourist. After tossing at least five cups of water on the fire, or at least into that hole that I imagine a fire was behind, the ancient one picked up a clump of tied-together leafy branches, actually more branch than leaf, and started swishing them over my body while making her own sounds. Her mumbling continued as she started smacking me with the branches. <laughs> then she leaned way over me and she began swishing and hitting Tyler. And she motioned for us to roll over after a bit. I don't think Tyler did, but I wanted to obey. And, and the leaf treatment or branch treatment continued on the other side. <laughs> Pretty soon she crawled out. We remained. <laughs> what do we do now? Tyler whispered a bit tensely, I would say. Beats me, I said. One thing we both knew. We did not want to do anything to get the old one any more angry. 
I can't say I really felt very relaxed. I'm not sure if it was because I was naked in an oven with my 23-year-old son, <laughs> many thousands of miles from home, or if it was because the old woman squeezing on the other side of the blanketed escape hatch seemed to be getting worse. I tried to think about the massage. Oh, no. Eventually, the heat forced me out. Manuela threw me a filthy sheet telling me to lie down on the plywood, or signing to lie down on the plywood. Tyler followed me and got the same instructions. Now, finally, time for the massage, the massage, I thought. But Doña Manuela went over to a corner of the shed, sat down, wrapped her own dirty sheet around her, and soon was snoring. We listened, lay there together, Tyler and myself, under our dirty sheets, and listened to children playing just outside the shed. In fact, there was a window over the plywood table or board we were laying on that had no curtains, and I wondered if they might have been peeking in on us. And then I began to wonder what else I might be sharing the dirty sheet with. I decided that maybe I had failed to give the Thomas Kyle enough of a chance. I'm going back in, I told Tyler, rolling off the plywood and scuttling into the oven. The ancient one roused herself with a sigh, a wheezing sigh. <laughs> and she followed me into the oven and proceeded to rough me up again with the leaves and branches. I'm out of here, Tyler called, and we heard the door shut to the shed. When I emerged again from the Tamascal, Doña Manuela urged me to get dressed. Not the mas, no masaje, I asked plaintively. She shook her old head and without a smile held out her hand for the dinero. I paid and I climbed, got dressed, and climbed the steep rocky hill to our cabana where Tyler had already taken a shower and was sitting out front reading. He looked up as I approached and he said, Mom, please, when you tell this story, we went into the oven separately, okay? <laughs> the whole vacation may not have been the kind of bonding I was hoping for. But wherever we go and wherever we have gone in our separate lives since there, then, Tyler and I will always share the memory of the Thomas Call. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. I'm so glad I wasn't there with you. <laughs> David Frenner is a retired Unitarian Universalist minister and a professional career counselor who, as part of his work, has developed a unique approach to writing cover letters that use storytelling to demonstrate voc vocational skills, a process that he has introduced at several regional career counseling conferences. With his wife, acupuncturist Lisa Rodermick, he co-founded Gentle Currents Wellness Center in Greenland. David co-chairs the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program and serves as co-MC of their monthly Poetry Hoot, which takes place on the first Wednesday of each month, September through June, at Café Expresso. Tonight, he'll tell us his story, How I Became a Sailor. <laughs> so, I grew up um, on the North Shore of Long Island. <clears throat> Um, in a town called Great Nick that borders Manhasset Bay. Manhasset Bay empties into Long Island Sound. Long Island Sound empties into the Atlantic Ocean. And in around 1952, the mid-50s, my father decided that my family, he and my mother and my younger brother and me, were going to become boaters. 
Then now this was particularly interesting because my father grew up in South Central Pennsylvania in a town called Hanover. There's virtually no water in Hanover. There might be some lakes or ponds, I don't recall. Um, he went to his college in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is not far from the Connecticut River, but nothing like a bay or the Atlantic Ocean. So none of us really understood where this idea was coming from that we should become a boating family, but that was his <laughs> idea. By George, we're going to do it. <clears throat> now, as it happened, uh, my father had a college roommate named um, <clears throat> John McHenry, and John McHenry <clears throat> lived on the south shore of Long Island and had a sailboat on Great South Bay. So that summer, our whole family packed into our uh, turquoise and white two-toned uh, 1950s-era station wagon and drove down, thank you, and drove down to the south shore of Long Island uh, to get on <clears throat> John's boat and learn how to sail. <clears throat> I was not very excited about this whole program. We had to put on these big, bulky life jackets, and we sat in this little sailboat, and the sails went from one side to the other, and we had to change sides all the time, and there was the water was choppy. <clears throat> and we did this uh, weekend after weekend after weekend for about four or six weeks, um, by which time, I guess, my father knew how to sail. <clears throat> that fall, we went to what turned out to be the first ever New York City boat show. <clears throat> it took place in a, uh, what was then a brand new uh, trade conference type center called the Coliseum, which I think was in the Columbus Circle area now long gone. And so we got on the train and went into Manhattan and went to this uh, the New York City boat show. And it was very exciting because there were all these boats all over the place. Um, and they were huge boats. They were like, I don't know, <clears throat> 25 feet long, maybe 30 feet long. Remember, I was eight. So they were huge boats. And and it could climb up into them, but it took a step ladder to get it up into them. And, and I was all over them, up and into one boat after another after another. It was so exciting. And then at the end of the day, my father announced that we had purchased a boat. I was so excited. And it turned out to be a sailboat. Way over in the far corner of the Coliseum of the New York City Boat Show was this very small area of boats, some bigger, some smaller. We, it turned out, had bought one of the smallest boats in the boat show. <clears throat> but it was very exciting. It was about a 15 and a half foot boat called a Cape Cod Mercury, Sparkman and Stevens design. And what was terrific about this, remember this was early 50s, it was made of a brand new material. Cape Cod Mercury's had for years been made out of wood and they were centerboard type boats. But this boat was made out of fiberglass. <laughs> it was a keel boat. Mercury's had never had keels before, and it was made out of fiberglass. And the sails were a brand new material never used before called Egyptian cotton. <laughs> Are you kidding me these days? Egyptian, it wasn't nylon, it wasn't dacron, it wasn't made of Kevlar, you know, it wasn't any modern day material. It was made of Egyptian cotton. The good thing about it was that the sails didn't stretch or shrink too much, and they never mildewed. So modern, modern technology for that era. <clears throat> so 
Um, the next spring, uh, the boat was delivered and uh, we got a mooring at the North Shore uh, Yacht Club, which sounds like a really fancy yacht club, but this isn't, wasn't too far after World War II. So the North Shore Yacht Club consisted of a big old barge that had been hauled up onto the shore. The <clears throat> part that was in the water was the dock where the boats were moored off of or the launch left from. And the part was on the shore was the, the clubhouse of the Yacht Club. And that was the sum and substance of the North Shore Yacht Club. But I thought it was cool. So we, <clears throat> um, we finally got our boat all outfitted and it was on its mooring. And we had a little five horsepower motor, outboard motor, so that we could motor around and get around if the wind ever died. And we got on the boat. My father knew how to sail, and he motored us out to the middle of Manhasset Bay. We put up the sails, we trimmed in the jib on both sides, and started to sail. <clears throat> the wind came up, the, the water got choppy, because there were lots of motorboats around, and everything fell apart and went to pieces. The sails were slapping from one side to another, the boom was slapping from one side to another, I was scared, and my father finally got knocked on the head of the, with a boom and fell down and was momentarily unconscious. I was petrified. Finally, I believe, I'm not sure about this, it was all happened so fast, um, <clears throat> a passing motorboat took pity on us, cast us a line, and we motioned, my father was back in business by then, and, and we got towed into our mooring, and, and we survived that. So... <clears throat> That was actually how my father learned to sail. <laughs> that fall, we had our Mercury put up in Mickey Kulik's boatyard. Mickey Kulik was this ancient Irish man of probably 40. <laughs> I was eight. This ancient Irishman of about 40, and he had a boatyard right near where the New York, the, <clears throat> the uh, North Shore Yacht Club was. And we had a boat put up on those kind of stilt things that boats are put up on, and we had a cover over it. And then, of course, the following spring, we had to <clears throat> uh, go out to the boatyard and get it ready for the water. The bright work had to be sanded and varnished, and the cover taken off, and, and some additional work had to be done. I could help with some of that, but I was nine by then, but I couldn't do very much. So I spent my time wandering around Mickey Kulik's boatyard. <clears throat> And I found this old ancient dock that looked really interesting. It was an old, ancient, deteriorating, sort of falling apart dock. And my father said to me, Davy, he called me Davy, Davy, don't go out on that dock. You might fall in. It's, it's dangerous. Mickey Kulik came up to me, good old ancient Mickey Kulik, who was 40, came up to me and said, Davy, don't go out on that dock when you're walking around the boatyard. It's dangerous. You might fall in. Of course, I had to go out on the dock. I had to. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> what you need to know about Manhasset Bay is that sometime after World War II, Manhasset Bay at that time had had these wonderful, pristine uh, beaches, but they'd all been dredged for the sand, which was taken into Manhattan and made into uh, skyscrapers or whatever. So there was nothing left of the beaches and the sand of Manhasset Bay, but what we came to call Manhasset Bay muck. And <clears throat> that's what was at the end of Mickey Kulik's boatyard, ancient, decrepit, falling apart dock. So when my father wasn't looking, 
I wandered out to the ancient, decrepit end of the dock and walked very close to the end and looked over the edge of it. And before I knew what happened, I fell 10 feet right down into the middle of Manhasset Bay Muck. I was petrified. I was mortified. Here I had done exactly what I was not supposed to do. Um, and, and I fell into the muck. I was covered. I was cold. And they rescued me, and they got out an old army blanket and wrapped me in it. And eventually, I got home and got a bath and got cleaned up. But the amazing thing that happened to me is that as we were, my father and Mickey Kulik were gathering me out and rescuing me from the Manhasset Bay muck, Mickey Kulik put his arm around me and he said, you know, Davey, anyone who was ever a true sailor, a real sailor, has fallen into the Manhasset Bay muck. <laughs> now you are a real sailor too. Don't forget your captain's hat, David. <laughs> All right, we have Michael Lang. Michael is another True Tales alumnus. We liked his story so much last month that we encouraged him to come back, and he did. Michael grew up in Durham, New Hampshire, where he studied outdoor education at UNH. For many years, he worked as both a ropes course facilitator and as a wilderness guide. Now he works through his small business, The Coyotes Inkwell, as a storyteller and writer. The story that he will share with us this evening is a tale from his wilderness experiences titled, More Than a Joke. No joking around, here's Michael. Thank you. I've taken a little creative license with the theme of vacations. My story this evening starts as many stories began many years ago. I was still studying outdoor education at the University of New Hampshire. It was the first week of the semester, and that Friday night, some friends and I were gathered around a table at the dining hall, sharing our experiences of the week. And as my one friend described and summarized his physics lectures, I found myself somewhat able to follow along with what he was talking about. But then his girlfriend began talking about her classes that week, her differential equations, her mathematic integrals, and it was another language to me entirely. Then it was my turn. How was your week, Mike? Well, it was first week of classes, so my rock climbing class didn't, we just stayed on campus. And, you know, we played toilet tag and sharks out on <laughs> T-Hall Lawn. T-Hall Lawn is right next to Thompson Hall, the large bell tower that stands in the middle of the university. It couldn't be anywhere more noticeable than right here. And there we were, playing toilet tag. Toilet tag, Mike? Well, it's kind of like freeze tag, except when you get tagged, you have to kneel down and pretend you're a toilet, and the only way someone can free is to come by and give you a flush. I, I could hear, in my imagination, the laughter beginning. Mike, seriously, your major is a joke. No, no, there's, there's more to it than that, guys. It's, it, it's all about how you have to take a risk to get someone back into the game, and you know when there are no real consequences, are, are you willing to take a risk? Mike, your major is a joke. All you do is play silly games. The laughter had gone from imaginary to reality. The verdict had been rendered. My major was a joke, and there was no argument to be made. As the conversation continued on that night, I found myself stuck in that moment, asking myself over and over again, could she be right? Could, could this just be a joke? Is, is, is all of this meaningless, what I'm doing here? It took me a long time to find the answer to that question. 
It was nearly four years later when I was working in Minnesota as a wilderness guide, working for a company called Wilderness Inquiry, one of the leaders in making adaptations for people with disabilities. I led so many trips that summer. My first season there as an intern, I spent 90 days out of the summer, almost three months, out in the woods, paddling, kayaking, canoeing, taking all different kinds of people out into the wilderness and giving them the amazing experiences that they would treasure for the rest of their lives. But it was my last trip that season that answered my question. For you see, that trip was different for me. I was taking a dozen people and two other guides up to the White Otter River in Ontario, Canada. I'd only been to Canada once before in my life. It was an adventure for me as well. That first night, we arrived late, long after dark. It was the campground where we were going to launch our boats in the morning. Now, one of the other guides and myself had thought to bring dinner with us, but no one else had. And so the remaining guide took everyone else in search of food while the two of us sat at a picnic table and ate cold spaghetti. While we were eating, my friend suddenly looked up and said, Hey, Mike, what do the northern lights look like? I glanced up to answer his question, and there behind him, I saw these white fingers of light reaching up above the distant treetops. They look a lot like that. And together we stared, timeless trance, watching that ethereal light dance across the sky. When the rest of the group returned, there were no words said. Everyone just sort of gathered around and watched the show that nature is putting on for us. That's the only time in my entire life that I have seen the Aurora Borealis. And I knew at that moment, this was going to be a magical trip. And it was. For on that trip, there was a man by the name of Richard. And years before I met Richard, he'd been in an accident and he'd been paralyzed from the waist down. And so he used a wheelchair. And he also had his dog with him, a beautiful golden retriever named Jazz, who had been trained to assist him in all kinds of ways. While he could point at anything and say, Jazz, get that! And she would dart right over what he had pointed at, snatch it up and bring it right back to him. We spent six days together on the river, but it felt like so much longer. We paddled together, we fished, we swam, we told stories around the campfire. There were many of us, myself included, who slept out every night. And as a result, I ended up getting a brand new alarm clock that week. For you see, Jazz was not allowed to sleep in the tent for fear that she might have an accident in the middle of the night or her claws might dig into the canvas of the tent. And so every morning, I woke up with a full-grown golden retriever trying to crawl into my sleeping bag with me. <laughs> if you have not experienced a full-grown dog trying to crawl into a sleeping bag with you, it involves a lot of wiggling and worming and squirming and a lot of tail wagging, too. And that was my alarm clock every morning. One by one, the days passed, and soon it was our last night together. As we were gathered around the fire telling stories, I asked people to share what they were going to remember from the trip. And everyone picked a few moments or two, and then it was Richard's turn. There were tears in his eyes as he simply said, I love the entire trip. I'm going to treasure every moment. That was all he said. We continued to talk around the campfire that night and tell our stories. At one point, another one of the participants on the trip asked Richard, Hey, when, when Jazz is too old to help you, are, are you going to get another dog? He said, no. 
Now, jazz is going to outlive me. But if I had a trip like this to go on every week, I would live forever. Hey, Mike, your major's a joke. All you do is play silly games. Well, perhaps. Perhaps there are some silly games that are played. And perhaps there are some jokes that are told. And perhaps to some people, it's nothing more. But perhaps... Perhaps to some people, it is more than a joke. More than a joke. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everybody. Tony Lee. He is an elementary school teacher who lives in York, Maine, with his wife, Joanne Connolly. A Seacoast personality for over 35 years... Tony has been an actor, a director, and a writer who can spin a darn good yarn. He now uses theater techniques as some of his teaching tools. Tony's teaching career has been an education for both him and his students. Some educational experiences have included class pets, and tonight he will relate to us a story about a very special turtle named Bobo Sim. Thank you, Pat. <clears throat> And <clears throat> thank you for uh, everybody who puts this on. This is a great, great opportunity. Um, I um, I think a good story is kind of like a movie. And um, one of the things that you you don't get with somebody just telling a story is, of course, the visuals. Um, you can't see my costume and my choreography. <clears throat> but also, <laughs> you miss um, the music that comes with a with a. Uh, a movie, so I wonder if maybe I could get a little help, especially my friends here and, and of course at home, uh, to maybe to hum three little songs. Uh, the first one is the um, the theme from the Water Country ads. I don't know if you heard that. It goes three times: Water Country, Water Country, Water Country. Have some fun. Okay, great. And then the other one you probably know from I think it's from The King and I, right? Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Now, if I start talking over it, maybe you could bring it down to a hum. Wait, 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 it'll be great. <clears throat> and the last, of course, I don't know, of course, but is um, Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Okay, well, this is going to be great. There is choreography for those of you who see it. The story is um, about... Uh, really a vanishing species that that um, I think people shouldn't be aware of. It's called the class pet. I mean, um, most of us, I mean, I remember class pets. I hope you do. But they're really, di they're dying out. And um, for a lot of reasons, um, you know, allergies and and uh, all sorts of things um, that, um, and of course, people have done, brought inappropriate things into classrooms, of course, and people get scared. <clears throat> um one of the things, though, I think that one of my colleagues brought out is that is that there's there really is a terrible fear that the pet's going to die, right? That I um, that and then you'll have to suffer that and and maybe deal with the trauma that how it affects the children. So 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 don't you know? So that's one of the reasons that people um, have fewer of them, I think, and 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 they're being replaced. I'm <clears throat> just today. I had my first day of school today, um, and part of the day included. Some training with a uh, like an online virtual kind of uh, kind of 
substitute. I think it's called Gizmo, and you can, you can. I, I was very impressed whether you can add like fake water and add fake sunshine, and you get a plant, and and you learn how all the elements that, that you'll be tested on, and you never get your hands dirty. So there's a lot. There's 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 some positive things about that, but <clears throat> you know, my heart really being um, an old time teacher is. There's the class pet. I mean, a lot of a lot of teachers, you know, that's their their best stories. They start. So this is about one named Bobo Sim, <clears throat> and he's a um, snapping turtle, and um, he um, he was hatched in the classroom with a lot of his others, but he really became like the the class champion. They just they loved Bobo Sim, and they, I think they were were just trying to irritate me because I was really clear, you know, this is a wild animal. We're not going to name them. We're not going to get all cuddly with them. We're going to observe them. And, of course, they named him. And, and they gave him this name, Bobo Sim. I have no idea where it comes from. It, was just, it seems just perfectly designed to irritate me. Of course, I take it personally. Um, but the <laughs> – oh, I do – well, I, I did want to make this other point about the – you know, about death, that, that – I really believe that if you're going to study biology and life, you've got to have some idea how precious it is, that it's not there all the time. And so we have things die all the time in my classroom. And usually they're, <laughs> they're just bugs or a, you know, a worm will crawl out of the worm bin and, and somebody pick up this little piece of jerky, you know, and, and say, oh, look, he's dead. And, um, and we usually head for the toilet. And then somebody else will start singing, um, water country, water country, water country. Have some fun, and then right about that time, the 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 worm or the bug or something is is heading heading off because you can hear the flush, and it's uh, it's it's a little ceremony. It's not very too heavy, uh, but it it does you know it it deals with mortality, and so um, only rarely has it been uh, done with larger critters, and we, well, that's part of the story, really. But um, <clears throat> um, I've done this about three or four times. I've somebody said, "Oh, you can," because I see um, near my house. I see in June mother turtles laying a clutch of eggs, <clears throat> and I consulted, I think five naturalists. Four of them were pretty, pretty uh, adamant that you should never touch a, a turtle's nest. But one of them said, "Well, maybe you could." So that's the one I listened to. And <clears throat> the first time I dug up. Um, um, this clutch of eggs, and they, it was about 35, 40 eggs, and they're kind of halfway between a ping pong ball and a moth ball, little leathery, little round things. And they'll, you, you dig straight down where the <clears throat> mother is dug, and then uh, off the side, they'll start pouring out. They, they, it's, they call it a jug-shaped hole. It's got a little cavern on the side. So they come out, and you try, uh, try not to disturb them too much. And um, keep them packed in sand, kept them in the classroom. And they hatched out like the second week of, of September. And the place went nuts. I mean, it was so fun. I mean, these these turtles are amazing critters. Um, you know, they've, they've, their ancestors, very close ancestors to the, um, to the snapping turtle, um, you know, with those, those black kind of snake eyes. It looks like a snake sticking out of a World War One helmet. You know, they 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 watch the dinosaurs show up, make a big flurry and have a lot of fun, and then watch them go away. I mean, these are 
long, very old <clears throat> survivors. And um, so, um, so they, 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 they were a lot of fun. We learned some stuff about them. We kind of studied their habitats and stuff. And then was able to return them to where I dug them up before winter when they need to uh, get into the water and um, they need to bury down deep so they don't freeze to death. <clears throat> but this, this I guess it was the third time I'd done it. Um, <clears throat> the there was no sign of them all through September. Just just sand. It was sand. Most of October, and then um, this they started. One started to come up, and um, which is just it's just so cool. They're, they're coming up out of the sand. There's these little things. So um, so it was pretty pretty soon. It decided that. Um, it wouldn't be safe. To, you know, it was, I was going to have them winter over in the classroom so, um, and release them in the spring. <clears throat> so this had us, um, forced us to have them longer, be around them more. You get more of the complications of the class pet. The hearts start to open up. And, they, and that's where they named this their champion, Bobo Sim, who they, I thought they were talking about different turtles, but they were very convinced that this was one champion turtle who was a little stronger, a little bigger, a little more aggressive, and um, that um, he certainly had the hearts of these, these kids. And so maybe this is the part where we, we sing just a little bit of uh, Getting to Know You, where we, we, we really got deeper into this. So with uh, Getting to Know You, I'll just rattle off a few facts about uh, turtles you may not know. That they, I mentioned that they are... They saw the dinosaurs come. Their temperature sex determined. So depending on the temperature of their, their clutch, they'll all be boys or all be girls. They got four claws in the front, five in the back. Great for digging. They're, um, they can't, these turtles can't retract. Um, you know, other turtles can hide in their shells. Snappers can't. That's why they're a little more aggressive. Um, they're in your face a little more. They, um, they're a rugged critter. And I could tell you one story about where I think it was Bobo Sim. I was trying to feed one little turtle. He, this other one came up. You know, I couldn't quite see him. Latched onto my finger. I accidentally did this. He helicopters, you know, 10, 15 feet lands. No, of course, no damage. But it's just they are strong. They're built to last, you know. <laughs> I wish I had a car like that. They, um, <clears throat> they, um, the, another interesting thing is they, you know, they're, those plates on the carapace are, they're called scoots, and they, they grow out of the center like a tree. They grow so you can, I've never done it, but you, but you should be able to count those annular rings and, and it's, this, it's, you know, determine the age of the screw. So anyway, we learned a lot about these things and we, <clears throat> and they had a lot of fun with them. And the, pretty soon it was December timed, time to go, you know, for, for a Christmas vacation. And I looked around, I could try to get somebody to take them. No, nobody wanted to. So I, I said, I'd, I'd take the sacred trust of uh, uh, taking care of Boba Sim and his, his pals for, um, for the, you know, the, a couple of weeks or about 10 days. Really. But <clears throat> so we had a little, you know, last day, a little, little holiday celebration. And that's when they 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 wanted to sing Feliz Navidad to Bobo Sim, and I don't know. I think he may have 
somehow acquired kind of an Hispanic uh, part of himself. <laughs> I don't know. He was he was beyond myth now, by now. So <clears throat> so maybe just briefly, uh, the the children. Imagine yourself the children singing to this particular turtle. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Now listen, I don't do well with Christmas. I I I. I don't buy the presents in time. It's an anxious time. I, it's full of disappointment. And in the morning, when I got home, in the, I went to bed, because things happen. <laughs> the, um, I woke up with the usual dread of, oh, I didn't get these presents and stuff. And then I s realized the turtles are in the car. It had been down to 20 degrees. I rushed out. It was still dark. I rushed out. I look at these two um, Tupperware containers that were solid bricks of ice with little bits of turtle sticking up out of it. And there's, I could even identify Bobo Sim with his <clears throat> eyes iced over. He looked like a woolly mammoth from the Ice Age. He, nothing looked so dead. And the, 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 I'm not proud to say that I was spinning, trying to come up with lies to uh, explain to the children why Bobo Sim was not going to return, why he was going to go to water country. But, <laughs> but, but, hold on, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that. <laughs> I started to thaw them out, and Bobo Sim's eyes opened. The rest of them all opened. They're crawling around. Of course, their their ancestors had been freezing and thawing for millennia. And so it was a Christmas miracle. And I uh, today asked my kids who were coming into the class to to pick a day on the calendar when they thought the next clutch of eggs was going to hatch. And I look forward to putting out a birth announcement and uh, letting you all know about it. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Yes, Christmas and turtles. Gotta love it. Great combo. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio, local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM.